Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. This is a special episode of Energy Policy Now, which was recorded in front of a live audience in the forum of the Kleinman Center during Energy Week here on the Penn campus. The topic is energy and the war in Ukraine. Today's guest is Anna Mikulska. Anna is a lecturer in Russian and Eastern European studies here at the University of Pennsylvania, and she is also a non-resident fellow in energy studies at the Baker Institute at Rice University. She is also an expert in European energy geopolitics. The following is our live conversation. It was recorded on Thursday, April the 7th. Welcome to the Kleinman Center and welcome to Energy Week here at Penn, uh, as well as welcome to this live recording of the Energy Policy Now podcast. I'm Andy Stone, host of the podcast. I'm here with our guest, Anna Mikulska, who is a lecturer in Russian and East European studies uh, here at Penn, and she is also our resident expert on global geopolitics of energy. So looking forward to this conversation today. One other thing I would like to say as this conversation today is going to be technical, it's going to be somewhat political, obviously, uh, but I want to acknowledge the human tragedy that's going on right now in Ukraine and just say that everyone's hearts is out for the people in Ukraine. We're thinking of you right now. So to get started, um, everyone in this room probably knows that Russia is uh, a key player in the global energy system, key supplier of fossil fuels, natural gas primarily, as well as a major supply of oil and of coal. Uh, it is also a key supplier, the key external supplier to Europe, the European Union. Um, so um, with that said, I think to get started with this conversation today, I'd like to do a kind of create a baseline, okay? And I'd like to take a step back about six weeks and look at what the European energy environment looked like at the point before the war began, before February 24th. What was the baseline at that point? And to me, uh, it seems like there were kind of two themes running through the European energy system at that time. One is extremely high, and unprecedented energy prices, partly tied to the recovery from the COVID pandemic, number one. And number two is an intensified and accelerated focus on decarbonization. It's rooted in the European Green Deal, Europe's goals of reducing emissions by over half by the year 2030. And I think that these major themes also created potentially vulnerabilities for the European Union as we go into the, went into the conflict about six weeks ago. But to start with you, Anna, I wanted to ask if you would kind of give us that level set. Where was the European energy system at that point? Um, and and what, what vulnerabilities might it have created? And again, it's great to have you here. Well, thank you so much for having me, although the occasion or the topic is actually quite quite disturbing, um, because as we speak, as you've mentioned, uh, people are dying in Ukraine um, and escaping the country. Um, but before all that happened, really 2021 has been a very interesting year for European energy, particularly for uh, European natural gas and um, electricity, um, because the prices have risen or rose to astronomical levels, some that haven't been ever seen. Um, in, and that goes both for gas and for electricity. Um, coal as well, since coal is often exchangeable with gas. Um, oil also, and this is all kind of tied to the post-COVID recovery, first in Asia and later in, 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 in Europe as well, as these, these uh, regions started uh, competing for sources of energy at the same time. Uh, there have been some kind of confluence of factors that really created additional difficulties. 
So um, the wind in the North Sea that would supply quite a lot of European electricity was record low, like literally within the whole entire history of recording that wind, it was the lowest levels of wind. And that meant that during the summer of 2021, you actually ended ha having to use more gas that otherwise could have been put for, this, uh, for the winter heating season into, the, um, uh, into storage. Um, you had some outages um, across the world of LNG, um, LNG infrastructure. Uh, there was actually also an outage uh, within the Russian system. Uh, both Europe and Russia were hit by a very cold winter. So the winter 20 to 21 was cold, which meant most, more gas was used to heat houses for a longer period of time. It was actually longer. It went all into the, into April. So when, again, when you were supposed to be already filling the storage for the next winter, there was still withdrawing from the storage to su support both heating, um, as well as, um, electricity, uh, generation because of, of low, um, uh, low winds. Uh, also, low hydro, Turkey has experienced drought, so it ended up using more other energy to, including gas, to support its electricity. And, um, you know, all the way back to, uh, to Brazil, Brazil was also experiencing drought. And instead of using their hydro, they ended up bringing more LNG, mostly from the US. So what you end up having is you end up having actually shortage of LNG across the markets. Um, Asia preparing itself for winter, really not kind of giving up to anybody in terms of price and, and Europe needing gas and LNG, um, for its own, uh, to support its own economies and, and recovery from COVID. At the same time, and that goes now to Gazprom, Gazprom hasn't been willing. It wasn't willing. It hasn't been willing really to support European recovery or the additional need that Europe had beyond what it was in Gazprom's contracts. So what we have heard from Gazprom again and again was, look, we are reliable suppliers. We have sent you the gas that we were contracted and you've got all of that gas. We, we are not committed to send more. We don't have to sell on spot, meaning, you know, at, additional gas, and we really need to fill up our storage. Maybe November 1st, we might be able to sell more, but that's just maybe. At, the, at that moment, storage in, in, uh, in Europe was um, much at much lower levels than normally in the 70s, in the 70, 75%, whereas normally it would be the 85, 95%. So that average would be much, much lower. And really, Europe started becoming quite, quite anxious because if a cold winter would come in with low influx of gas from Russia, as Europe was seeing, um, it could create it in parts of Europe, at least issues like the fact that people could not heat their houses. Um, and so the prices went off, off the roof. Um, end of 2021, uh, storage was still low. Now, the interesting part, and that goes now to Gazprom uh, and, and, and storage. So Gazprom kept talking about how re reliable partner it is and how it you know, provides for all the gas that it contracted and kind of pointing to the fact, look, that's why you should have a long contract, long, you should have long contracts with us. You kind of stopped having, you stopped those long contracts, but look where it got you. Um, not only this, you should make sure that that new pipeline that we just built, Nord Stream 2, starts working, even though maybe it doesn't comply with your, with your European, uh, legislation and regulation. And that was kind of all gas. At the same time, Gazprom, instead of sending the gas, the contracted gas from Russia, Gazprom was actually withdrawing from storage in Europe that it controlled. So literally, as Gazprom was talking about how reliable provider of gas the company is, it was creating that situation of lower levels of storage uh, of gas in Europe and bumping up the price. Do you think that was uh, deliberate from the Kremlin that that was happening? Was that coordinated? Um, I think it was definitely something that was fought through. It was not necessarily a long-term plan that was developed a year or two later. It almost fell into Putin's lap. 
the whole situation. It's, again, confluence of factors on the mark uh, in, in the natural gas market that Putin was very eager to to use, and it has used it. And and here, you know, it's important to say is, is I, I kind of use gas from Russia and Putin interchangeably because it is interchangeable. Uh, and it's something that, that Gazprom is kind of kept saying, you know, we are a commercial company, uh, but truly the way they are organized is really, they, they have grown out of the ga uh, Soviet gas ministry, and that's how they still are being organized. Um, just think about very recent announcement by, by Putin that uh, gas needs to be paid uh, with rubles. It wasn't the CEO of Gazprom that announced it. It was the political spectrum of the uh, 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 political uh, political part of the uh, of the establishment. So again, very much like a ministry rather than company. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. You know, um, about requiring payment in rubles. Is Russia really in a position to make such a demand? I mean, Russia. There's there's a, an interplay, right? Here's an interplay. Europe needs Russian energy. Russia needs income from the sale of energy to, to Europe. Can Russia really do that well, and get they, away with it? They've tried and they they were met with resound no. I think only Hungary Europeans. said that they would do it. But. Yeah, well, Hungary is kind of uh, committed to, to, to Russia, unfortunately, uh, on many levels. Uh, and it's only actually not gas, it's also um, they are building Russian uh, actually Russian-sponsored nuclear power plant. So there is a lot going on with Hungary, but really uh, there was a resounding, no, we're not going to uh, pay with, with rubles. And, and that's what kind of Putin, I think, at this moment he might have already expected that this is what's going to happen, but he didn't expect that the world and particularly the, the you know, the Western alliance and, and, and kind of the, uh, will, will unite against him the way uh, we've had, really. So, um, but that did not uh, prevent the fact that the price, uh, prices of gas jumped up, right? So um, it's just kind of the disturbance in, in the market that this uh, created. It probably was worth something to Putin. Um, had he been successful in, you know, bringing ruble as the currency for, uh, for Gazprom, that could actually uh, be a really uh, big deal because it would go around the sanctions that have been imposed on the central bank since ruble is not very very popular uh, popular currency uh, the companies would have to go buy rubles from central bank that now is sanctioned and then that kind of would circumvent the sanctions but obviously that's that not happen and it seems that now the situation is that the companies have to have two accounts one in euros one in ruble in Gazprom bank which was not sanctioned and they pay with, uh, with, with euros. Those euros are then later converted uh, by, uh, through the other account by Gazprom Bank into rubles. So they do not actually have to deal with the central bank. You know, I'd like to take a step back for just a moment and kind of put some quantification to how dependent Europe is, the EU is, on Russian energy. So I think 40% of uh, European gas comes from Russia. Um, I think 58% in Germany. And the thing that gets, that really kind of stands out about this is I guess looking into this whole conflict as it was building up, there were maybe two camps. There were the optimists and there were the pessimists, right? And there were the optimists who said, you know what? We are interconnected over these energy with Russia, Europe, Russia, and that's gonna prevent any conflict from happening. We're both too important to each other. On the other side, you have the pessimists saying, look, Russia's going to go ahead and use this as its energy as a weapon. And it has done that in the past, right? Shut off uh, Ukraine's energy supply in the winter, in the middle of the winter in 2006. Actually, end of the winters. End of the winters are much worse than the middle of the winters because that's, you low, that's when you low on storage. Low on storage to start out with, right? So, so all of this is already in place. And what hits me about it is how poorly prepared Europe seems to have been for what happened. Maybe Germany most of all, right? Yeah, so, so I you, get your, your thoughts you are right. You're talking about the pessimists and optimists. I, I talk about the Western Europe versus Central Eastern Europe and, and Eastern Europe in general, really, because that's where the bifurcation really occurred. Um, Western Europe has dealt with Russian gas for a very long time. The first Russian gas came in 1969 to Austria. Uh, based on several set of uh, deals, um, 1970 gas came to uh, commercial gas from Russia came to Germany. 
uh, midst of Cold War, really. And, um, and it was really based on the need, truly, the need of both. Um, Europe needed gas, and it saw gas as the more geopolitically secure option compared to oil. And think 1973, OPEC embargo on oil, right? So um, why would we use oil to either heat our houses or, or produce electricity. It's not secure geopolitically. OPEC is dealing with it. Let's buy more secure gas from Russia. Um, well, it kind of worked for them for a while, right? Because we really did not have any issues with Russian gas flowing to Western Europe throughout the entire Cold War. Um, Germany, in particular, has uh, expanded and really built um, a lot of utility ties with Russia. So Gazprom has uh, has had joint ventures with German companies. German companies uh, were like Russian companies were present within uh, within the German market. As I've mentioned, Gazprom still until very recently, which there was an overtake by some of the storage, but it controlled storage, a lot of storage in Germany, approximately one third of it. Um, uh, which is a lot. Um, and, and, and in fact, some of the companies had, had common training sessions with Gazproms. So, uh, it's, it's, it was, it was not only on the political level, which it, there has been a bit of a connection there, We're talking about Gerhard Schröder and SPD, which is currently actually in power, which has significant ties with the Russian, uh, political sphere and Russian energy sphere. Um, but this kind of developed and, and really nothing happened until uh, after Cold War. Um, because when you think about it, what was supposed to happen? Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. <laughs> they did not have any say in how the gas goes and where it goes and, and to how much they paid and, and, and so on. Poland was part of the Soviet, you know, Soviet sphere of influence. So they also kind of were sitting still. But now that those countries got their own independence, Things changed, and those countries started demanding uh, things like payments. Um, they started having to deal with Russia, but also to they they had to make sure that they're sovereign against Russia, right? And in Ukraine is especially the, the big example because Russia always wanted to have an influence in Ukraine, and gas provided this influence in many ways um, for Ukraine. Um, currently, Moldova, very similar situation. Um, where Russia would provide gas to Ukraine at a very low value, sometimes like one third or even less than what, what, what everybody else was paying in, uh, even in Poland, in Germany, in, in, uh, in Italy and so on. Um, it was also, it would also allow Ukraine to accumulate debt. So that's another kind of carrot that Russia was giving, right? It wasn't that the, the source of the cutoff in 2006? So that's, that's what would happen. And whenever Ukraine, Ukraine would want to do debt, something, right? right, would do something that Russia wouldn't like. Russia said, oh, we, we are really commercial. We, you know, Gazprom said, we're really commercial company. We need that gas to be paid at a market level. Obviously, it was impossible for Ukraine to pay at a market level at, in an instant because they were not used to or they were not prepared for those prices. Um, we want the, the debts to be paid off. It's our money, right? Once of a sudden. And it, has become an issue, and that's when Russia decided let's let's go ahead and um, decrease the pressure in the pipeline. So the cutoff is a special way of, of of saying you know we will still send gas to Germany, Poland, or wherever else is going, but we decrease the pressure of gas in the pipeline. So there's going to be not enough gas for Ukraine to take it, and that was 2005, 2006, 2008, 2009 winters. Um, what happened is, though, uh, Ukraine would siphon some of that gas that was not going there, uh, arguing that this is needed for maintenance, but really this contributed to shortage of gas in Europe. And in some countries like Bulgaria, actually, people did not have enough gas to heat their houses during those winters. So um, that was an issue that led Europe to rethink their energy security. And that's where the bifurcation in thinking was. The Western Europe, especially Germany, they kept saying, well, you know what? You, uh, in, 
with Gazprom's really kind of, you know, uh, behind it also, similar idea, Ukraine is not a reliable transit territory. Well, kind of wasn't, right? Because they kept having issues, but whose fault is it? Well, that's, that's, you Who engineered the situation? Right, the situation was engineered as such that there, whether or not they w- it, there would be a problem that, that, that transit, right? And at the time when it was most convenient for Russia, obviously. Um, and, and then, so they were saying, well, you know what? We need another route of supply. We need diversity of routes of supply that, would in- that will encourage energy security. Um, whereas this Eastern Europe, Central Eastern uh, Europe, particularly Poland, Lithuania, and other countries as well, Czechs, uh, Czechs um, Slovakia to some extent, they were saying, look, um, you, have, you cannot just have Russia supply your energy. You, you have to get some other sources of energy. So it's not only the diversification of Russia supply, but also diversification of suppliers. And those regions actually have pushed for it. If you ever look at the map of pipelines in Europe, um, look at the 2010, 2014 timing, and you will see how different they are. When they go through from Russia through Eastern Europe, you will see those parallel lines. They're not connected to each other. They just cross those territories. They dare to support the Western part and, and kind of, you know, part of the gas ends up in those countries that are being transit territories like Ukraine, Poland, Belarus, Czechs, and so on. And then as soon as those pipelines hit Western Europe, Germany, they become a net, almost like a web of pipelines. They're being interconnected and there are more connections to more suppliers. So Western Europe has always had more suppliers. They had Algeria, Norway, and Iberian Peninsula has huge amount of LNG capacity. Unfortunately, not very well connected to the rest of the continent. So that's a big issue. Uh, but in Central Eastern Europe, those countries were knew what's going on. They have been dependent on Russia for a very long time, and they know what it could mean. So they get kind of saying, well, you really need to think about this. You cannot just put all your eggs in one basket. You cannot really rely on Russia because Russia is great with using what looks like commercial actions at the time when it's the most convenient. And so when you actually consider the background information, those commercial actions are not so commercial anymore, right? So you cut off gas at the end of cold winter, or you know, you, you, you ask for money at the end of cold winter knowing that somebody cannot pay you. So the countries in Eastern Europe were aware of this. Obviously, Russia was setting this up so they could selectively cut off supply to any of these countries, but then the network would still make sure that everybody in yeah. Europe was served in Western Europe. Right, and, and Western Europe had more supply from others, and, and, and uh, still, they, they were, it was much easier to balance the market when there is an interconnection. That, but that's why Central Eastern Europe has really pushed for more interconnections, um, new terminals were established in 2014, Kuipeda in Lithuania, 2015 in Poland, I think 2015 in Poland, uh, LNG terminal. Kirk just started working last year uh, in Croatia um, and more interconnections, uh, including interconnection that has um, is either about to start working or already has uh, between Poland and Lithuania which is actually very important for what was recent announced. So recently, if anybody follows, uh, Lithuania announced that they will not bring any more Russian gas. 100% they will, they will be able to live with other gas. Um, this is because they are, they do have their own uh, liquefaction, uh, uh, regasification terminal for LNG. They can bring from somewhere else. That terminal is Capacity is large enough to actually support all three Baltic republics. All three Baltic republics have worked over the last several years to decrease their reliance on natural gas. And in addition, this new interconnection connects Poland and Lithuania, both of those terminals. So there is a, this is the first land interconnection between Baltic Republic and Europe ever in terms of gas. 
And now there's a better way in which they can balance the market. They also connected to Finland, but Finland is a very small, uh, small user of natural gas. What's interesting looking at Western Europe, Germany has had some LNG regasification projects kind of on the books for a while. Now they've noted that they're going to go forward, I think, with two, potentially four of those. Um, the EU is now saying that it's going to cut its dependence significantly, I think, by two thirds on Russian gas within the next couple of years. I, I think the question before that, and this is kind of a hypothetical, I don't know if I want to dwell on it too long, but is there a likelihood or a chance that Russia at this point would just cut off the supply? I mean, you cannot ex exclude any type of um, action that Russia couldn't do. I mean, what Russia is doing in Ukraine, it's unimaginable. And they're st still doing this. So um, I think gas is much less of an <laughs> of an issue, really, than 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 killing, uh, you know, um, civilians and 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 uh, uh, you know, destroying cities. Um, although for Russia, gas means money, right? Um, gas, oil, coal, all this, uh, Russia is exporting. Uh, to Europe and other countries, of course, but Europe is their main main market, and this brings money. Uh, so this can finance uh, whatever Russia is doing in Ukraine and beyond. Um, and this is kind of that moral struggle that the leaders, the European leaders, and generally uh, the Western leaders have with uh, what to do, right? And um, now we've heard that coal might be that first kind of resource that Europe is willing to give up um, and um, from Russia. Um, the next would be oil and gas. Um, I'd argue that oil probably is easier to replace. It always will be expensive, um, but gas, it's a little bit more difficult um, because, not impossible though, uh, because it needs infrastructure. So, you know, oil, it's, you, you put it on tanker, you de de deliver it and put it through the, uh, through the pipelines, um, and it flows. Uh, with natural gas, it's either the pipeline and these are interconnections that Europe has with Russia. Uh, the other one is, is Azeri gas, but that's not as much as there, as there is. There's also, of course, of course, Algeria and then Norway. Uh, these already exist, but what's with the additional capacity? It's, it's the LNG that could come, right? Um, we know that there's gonna be, uh, you know, we, there's gonna be competition with Asia for LNG. That's one. But really the way, you know, I have looked with my colleagues at the Baker Institute at, at the issue. And what we really see is there even might be enough gas to send to Europe, but is there gonna be enough infrastructure in Europe to actually deliver this gas where it needs to be delivered? Right? Because as I've mentioned, for example, Iberian Peninsula, so Europe has approximately 200 BCM of gas uh, capacity, of LNG capacity. For kind of to compare, this is approximately what Russia sends to Europe every year. So, you know, on the surface of this, one to one, win-win. Well, no. 130 BCM of that gas, is in, uh, of that LNG capacity intake is in Iberian Peninsula, which is very weakly connected to the rest of the, um, of the continent. That means um, you cannot really send all of that where it needs to be sent. Uh, in addition, uh, Germany, as, uh, as you've noted, is a major, is actually the biggest uh, uh, customer, was the biggest customer of Russia in Europe. Um, it, um, it would bring, you know, at least uh, 90, sometimes BCM uh, of, of gas from and, and actually, uh, from, from, uh, 55 through the pipeline that's going underneath the, uh, the Baltic Sea, uh, it could have, uh, gone up to 110. So, but now potentially nothing if Russia would cut off that access and there is no LNG terminals there yet. Um, there were the, the three that were planned for years and they would never kind of got enough approval was Brunsbüttel, Stade, um, and Wilhelmshaven. All of them are here now under consideration, but they won't be brought online until years from now. I think Stade is in 2026. Uh, it's not, you know, at the tomorrow or two months from now. So Europe is really looking at issue of making of ability to balance that market um, and provide energy 
to every single country at the same, uh, you know, um, secure supply of energy at the same uh, time. So one way which, uh, again, my colleagues actually came up with, uh, what came up with, we, we've been thinking about is, is the floating, uh, floating uh, um, LNG terminals, right? So regasification uh, units, which could be extremely helpful. You can actually install them within months so they could be ready for next winter. And if so, approximately eight to 10 would be available and could provide between 45 to 80 BCM of gas that could be stationed um, where, for example, Nord Stream 2 was supposed to be entering and brought into, you know, regasified into those pipelines. Um, other ports are in, you know, in, uh, in actually Holland in, uh, by, um, gasification units and, 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 and pipelines that exist by the Groningen field that's being kind of uh, relinquished. Well, well, energy security is, is really the big issue here, right? And as you just pointed out, time is of the essence. We're coming out of the cold period this year, right? So there's gonna be less gas demand for home heating. Once we go into next fall, can you get those reserves, the storage filled up? And if you're building, you know, Terrestrial infrastructure; those projects take a long time. If you can talk about the floating LNG, that's 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 quicker. And I think there's a very interesting um, little nugget of data I wanted to bring up. Data um, that was in the the FT. Uh, Martin Wolf, who's the chief economics commentator, wrote about this recently, and he said that if you took away all Russian gas and tried to replace it right now, you'd still be 30% short for the continent. That's what he said, 30% short in total supply. If you were able to get supply from, from Qatar, from the United States, that was kind of the number that I saw. And he said that that 30% decrease would, in the case of Germany, lead to at least 2% decline in GDP, an extra $1,000 a year in energy prices. And you had mentioned in an earlier conversation we had, your mother who lives in Poland has experienced this energy price situation firsthand, right? Yeah, I mean, the prices of gas are um, extremely high. It's like, you know, $1,000 a month gas uh, gas bill, right? So uh, gas bills that people have to pay. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, huge, right? Um, when we looked at the at the issue of, well, could we replace Russian gas in Europe? Um, in, in, in the paper that I, I wrote with my Baker Institute colleagues, uh, colleagues that we, we actually thought there is a way of replacing it. Uh, probably some rationing would have to go in, um, but you could still bring more gas uh, from Algeria. You could start actually getting more gas from Groningen field instead of kind of, you know, uh, phasing it out. You could bring actually more and actually Dutch government has uh, has supported it, at least in short term. Um, you actually could also run the Rigas uh, facilities at higher than capacity level. And they have been run at higher than capacity level. We actually had the data, we looked at the data. So there is, looking at just capacity is often not enough in many ways. Um, so for this winter, it would be even, you know, it, it was kind of doable. Uh, the problem with next winter is, is that you need to, um, to put a lot of gas into the storage and you will end up with having to compete for LNG with Asia, which is usually highly motivated to fill up its storage because countries like Japan and Korea have no other way but bring in LNG to fill up the storage. They do not have connections via pipelines. So are we entering a period then of, of extended, elevated natural gas prices because of the global competition? So we, uh, globally, yes. Uh, in US, it's gonna be uh, not as big of a deal. Um, so approximately only 10% of US production is exported and not much more will be uh, because of constraints on, uh, on infrastructure. There's just no, there's currently, there is whatever LNG infrastructure exists, there is nothing new that's gonna happen until 2023, 2024, mostly. So we kind of, you know, I think the EIA says we can, uh, US will be able to send out 13.9 uh, uh, MCM per day maximum till to, uh, end of 2022, and that's it. So the gas 
prices cannot go more up because there's just going to be a production that, that's going to be there. We cannot just send more gas. Um, what could increase prices in the U.S. for gas, it's the regional uh, lack of pipeline capacity. And if you end up with cold winter in the Northeast, well, you, you will end up with high prices because there's going to be not enough pipeline to bring gas. And, and then you might end up actually have to compete for LNG with Europe and Asia because um, you will need to bring LNG to the Boston Harbor. And, and that, that's, that's when the prices could go up. But it's not because of the global competition between Europe and Asia. And I guess that's where, you know, that's where we will see potentially some work that's going to be done through the American administration and through the Western allies, kind of trying to manage the scale of the issue. Um, is there going to be something like... Um, you know, an agreement where uh, Asian countries will be willing to forego some of its purchases or to send some of other, uh, some of cargoes that otherwise would have gone there to Europe uh, to avoid the situation of price war, but also avoid the situation when Europe, Europe and its economy is is failing completely. Although, I mean, European economy. <laughs> is going to be hit. It has been hit already. There is already a lot of industry and commercial activity that's not happening because prices of gas are so expensive and some of the gas was just not, was being curtailed for the industry just to make sure there's going to be enough of gas for heating the houses during winter. Now, I'd like to go ahead and shift the conversation for a moment here to the issue of decarbonization, right? So um, this is all a major distraction for Europe. Uh, it is, the continent generally is investing, it sounds like, or considering investing in new gas infrastructure, regasification infrastructure in the case of, of Germany. And I think one of the questions that comes to mind is probably a two-part question is one is what is the impact on the trajectory towards Europe's 2030 goal and beyond going to be on this? And number two, if we are seeing, and it's a great irony here, right? So the continent is leading on decarbonization with its, with its targets. At the same time, now it's forced to invest in fossil fuel infrastructure. Does that lead us to a point where we're going to have lock-in based around that infrastructure? And two, and this is kind of a question to raise as well, is what is the response of, let's say, the gas industry going to be in investing in a continent that is set on getting out of fossil fuels with the thought that this may be temporary, we're gonna end up with stranded assets because they wanna get out of gas eventually anyways. So yeah, it's, it's kind of really- It's, it's complicated. It's a, yeah, it, it is complicated, but um, one way actually to, to ad address those issues that, you know, um, uh, are actually those floating, uh, uh, floating LNG units. Um, because they can be brought for a short period of time and they can be taken away after several years without much of an investment needed. It's like 50 to $100 million investment to set them up versus you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of building new LNG terminals that will actually would be grandfathered in. Uh, but there's also other things, right? We keep talking about climate action as if it was 100% renewable energy, but climate action should be to decarbonize. And you can decarbonize thing, you can decarbonize in many other ways as well. And I think what, what will happen is that Europe might need to think of how to decarbonize while using fossil fuels, because it's not so easy to get rid of them. If anything, that if anything we have were shown by the pandemic, by the high prices of, of energy and by the current invasion is that it's not easy to get rid of fossil fuels in an instant. And um, even in a developed world, who, which already has much more renewables than the developing world, for example. And what I feel is that this experience, it will make it easier for the developed world to level with the developing world. Yeah. Uh, because the climate action will meet energy security dimension, which the developing world has been really talking about throughout the entire, 
throughout the last decade. Uh, truly, Glasgow has been kind of, you know, one of the, the best example where we've seen the developers saying, well, you know, we're going to be using coal because it's a secure source of energy. And our main goal is to develop. And we will need a secure, easy way to access cheap energy. And it often might be coal. So you're saying the interests and the decarbonization pathway in Europe and the rest of the world might be more aligned now? I think so. I think there might be actually more attention. And I think I, I mean it in a very positive way, because if we look at all options for decarbonization, we might actually come up with something that otherwise we might have not even seen, right? We, instead of looking at a tunnel vision, we are looking at a whole set of different solutions, which different countries might apply differently, right? So we know and we knew that the developing world, Asia in particular, will be using coal into the 2050s. And this is where the additional demand for energy will be coming from. This is where the population growth is going to be coming from. This is where economic growth is going to be coming from. And that's where additional demand for energy is going to come from. It's not going to come from Europe. It's not going to come from the U.S. So if this additional energy that's being used there, it's actually developed from dirty fossil fuel use, well, that's not going to do any good to any of us. doesn't matter how hard and how much we decarbonize. It's all diffused, right? And that's something that now I think Europe will have to think about because they will need to provide energy, period, any energy, but also cheap energy for their population, cheap air. The population can take quite high prices, but maybe not as high as they currently are and they might be. So how can we adjust it? We already saw five days into the invasion, uh, five days into the invasion, Germany, known for its energy vendor reform, switching to renewable, closing nuclear, getting rid of coal. Five days in the invasion, they, they actually announced, Olaf Scholz announced that we will, in order to, secure, uh, to provide energy security for our population, we will use all possible energy sources, including nuclear and coal. Huge change within five days out of the Russian invasion. So if the countries that have money like the developed countries, EU, US, Australia, Canada, all the countries start thinking about, well, how can we help the development um, and how can we decarbonize in the best way possible? And if they actually bring in money into this, bring in more research into this, something that the developing world might not have been able to, could not afford then we might actually come up with a lot of good technology that will not only, you know, help Europe decarbonize, U.S. decarbonize, but also will help decarbonize the developing world in a way that will also support the economic development there. You know, I, 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 what I hear here is that this war is causing potentially a major rethink in Europe, potentially on what resources are going to be available for its decarbonization path. And I am also think I'm hearing here that if more thought, effort needs to be put into cleaning up fossil fuels, potentially if that investment is made in Europe, that investment could also be benefit other places. Obviously, the same issues exist as always. None of these, none of these technologies are scaled. Yeah. The investments are going to be huge, and we need them now, not some point down the future. But that's, that's very, very interesting. You know, I, I want to jump for a moment somewhere completely else, and I want to go to Russia, mm -hmm. what this all means for Russia, right? Okay, so is Russia, essentially, and I think it is, but maybe this is a rhetorical question, creating demand destruction for its main exports, its energy exports? And if so, what does this mean for its geopolitical leverage in two, five, ten years? Right. And, and you know, when, uh, when in 1973, when OPEC embargo hit, that there was actually demand destruction for oil, right? I mean, including in Europe, gas became the more important part to heat houses and produce electricity. And that's 
2014, there was always already uh, after Russia invaded Ukraine and took over Crimea, there was already some part of demand destruction there. And this is even more significant, right? Um, I really cannot imagine the situation in any short to medium term where Europe would be fine with bring with kind of bringing in more uh, you know Russian energy than it needs or it has to have. Uh, instead, it will be scaling it down. Um, and what it means is Russia will need to look somewhere else. Uh, we already know that a lot of companies, Western companies backed out from Russia, energy companies, right? BP was the first one that kind of took out its 20% um, stake uh, in Rosneft, the Russian state oil company, and said, well, we're kind of forfeiting it. Just left it on the table. Um, Shell and Exxon have announced that they will back out from the Sahalin 1 and 2, uh, uh, that they just need time, uh, particularly Exxon, because they actually are operating the... the, 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 uh, uh, the LNG terminals? Uh, yes, they are uh, backing out, but they need time. Uh, because also it's environment, it's actually very environmentally susceptible. So it, it, the backing out, it's it's not an easy task. Also bringing out all the crew and all, all this type, type of thing. But we know that companies are backing out. Um, a lot of companies backed out already in 2014. Um, but what we've seen is that, um, in, mostly in financing, what we've seen is that uh, Chinese capital took, took over. And that's what kind of the, the usual reaction to what's happening now and kind of consensus is that we will see a lot of investment coming in from China in particular, potentially some from India, maybe other Asian countries as well, but China is going to be the one that's going to kind of really look into um, Russian energy. And Russia has been pivoting to Asia, especially China for a long time now, at least 15 years. Uh, Russia wanted a direct pipeline to China to send gas. It actually, China agreed to it after sanctions on Russia were imposed in 2014. Uh, but it wasn't the route that, China, that Russia wanted. It was a route that is now known as Power of Siberia 1. And it's, it actually takes gas from fields that are completely landlocked and only going to, uh, going to China. So it's really kind of just a one-way delivery to China. There is nobody else that can, can be using those fields because there's just one pipeline that was built. But, but what Russia really wanted, Russia wanted a pipeline that, would, um, that they call Power of Siberia 2 now, uh, that would go through, from the same fields that Europe is being fed with, the with the gas that Europe is being fed. Um, and China wasn't eager that because it mean it would give Russia the you know the, the arbitrage opportunity and 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 potentially geopolitical uh, right benefits. Um, now that Europe is in most likely going to be backing out and not needing those fields, we probably will see China more interested in that pipeline. You know, I have to say, China has to be watching what's going on. Of course, you know, and they're saying, oh. Russia, not a very reliable energy trade partner, whatever it may be, we don't want to get too hooked on their, their energy. And, and, and looking at, I, I looked at some statistics. I mean, Russia provides a very small percentage of, of the gas that goes to China oh, yeah. at this point. They're, they're not big. Yeah, they're like 10 to 15 It's, it's nothing like the influence or the connection they have with Europe. And it may no. never be, right? Uh, it, it, it may never be, but China's, China's energy... Uh, policy has been on diversification of energy sources, both in terms of countries where they bring it from, but also type of sources. So China is using LNG, is using piped gas, is using coal, developing coal, is using electricity, of course, brought from uh, renewable power as well. Uh, so all of the above. And that's kind of the, the way of making sure that they are not reliant on one or specific. But they might, uh, they might be actually quite eager of using Russia because Russia is in the position, it's not in the position of strength here right now. And it won't be. So, uh, you know, I've heard some of my colleagues saying, well, I'm actually concerned about Russia becoming a vassal country to China. Because literally, this is going to be the one country that can take its energy and can bring in some capital. Um, and this is something that we all should be actually concerned um, because before Russia has invaded Ukraine, our most cons utmost concern was not Russia, it was China. 
Um, if China is propped up with a cheap energy coming from country that's not necessarily that friendly, but will do whatever it needs to do because it has no other choice, well, then it is becoming an issue. And, and um, what else Russia can add uh, to, you know, Chinese uh, growth in power in terms of geopolitics? It's, it's, it's also a question. Well, it's, it's a completely different conversation we yeah. could be having here, but it seems to me a very weakened Russian state is probably not the greatest thing for security for any, from anybody's perspective, right? That's right. Anna, thanks for your insights. Let me ask you one more question. It's kind of a crystal ball question. Ooh. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, what do you think Europe's energy system is going to look like in half a decade or a decade from now? How, how is it going to have diverged from where we thought it was going two months ago? I don't think anybody knows that. Mm -hmm. It probably depends on the next great invention. Mm -hmm. um, are we going to invent a battery, you know, two months from now that can actually uh, collect whatever energy you need and use renewables and just forget about fossil fuels or whatever else? Um, or are we going to figure, figure out direct capture from air of CO2 and then don't worry how much fossil fuels are we using at all because then it doesn't matter if we can do that, right? So uh, the next invention can completely change on of how our energy transition is going to proceed. I mean, just think about the US, which was a major LNG importer, setting up as major gas and LNG importer. And uh, within, you know, several years and uh, shale revolution, and now it is the largest LNG exporter and, uh, you know, and um, uh, one of the biggest uh, exporters of oil and gas in the, in the well, As you said a few moments ago, there's going to be a lot more investment potentially in a lot of different options because yes. all the options need to be on the table, it sounds like, right? Or more I would, I'd hope so. Um, I definitely hope so. Yeah. Anna, thanks very much for talking. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for great. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening to this episode of Energy Policy Now. Today's guest was Anna Mikulska, lecturer in Russian and Eastern European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Keep up to date on more energy policy conversations and research by following the Kleinman Center on Twitter. And to register for upcoming in-person and virtual events from the center, visit our website. Our address is kleinmanenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now and have a great day.